Well, welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast. This is episode number 292. And today, six years later from episode four, Steve and I are revisiting our A to Z gear list for backpack hunting. So back in episode four, Steve, Lenny, and I went A to Z through our gear list line by line and talked about what we packed and the specific gear items we used. Steve and I are doing that same thing today, only talking about what's changed in six years. So what are we packing today? What is different from six years ago? And what can you learn from that? This is a longer conversation as we literally go through everything we pack for most hunts. And to accompany this episode, we also have some resources for you guys. So there is a spreadsheet that we use to track our gear list, what goes in the pack for a specific hunt, what that pack will weigh, and much more. And you guys can get that for free at exomountaingear.com forward slash gear list, or just look for the link in the show description. Hopefully this tool will help you guys plan for your next hunts by planning easier and packing smarter. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. As always, you can follow up with any questions you have for us by sending an email to podcast at exomontgear.com. And if you think this show may help a friend, especially this episode, someone who's planning for a hunt, go ahead and share it with them. That'll help us tremendously with the show and also hopefully help some hunters as well. All right, guys, here we go. Let's dive right in and enjoy this gear conversation. Steve, can you believe we uh, last had this conversation six years ago? We're now here later oh, talking I about st- it. I still don't believe we've been doing the podcast that long. It does seem crazy. It's weird. Just, uh, time flies. Yeah. It was episode four and we had an A to Z gear list uh, as you, Lenny, and I basically went kind of line by line through our gear list or at least the big categories. And each of us talked about what we we're using then. Um, and so we're going to do the same thing now. You and I, Steve... Uh, but really reference that original episode to talk about what we were using then and what we are using now. Uh, and I think what would be interesting about that is to not only see how gear changed, but maybe see how like mindset has changed. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we're just kind of going to hit this line by line. We will have uh, resources coming out along with this podcast over in the EXO blog uh, where we will share kind of like you know, part of what goes with the gear list is not just the gear itself, but how do we structure that? And so you and I uh, over there will be sharing some like resources, basically like the spreadsheet that I use as a gear list or reference list. Uh, we'll, we can point you guys some other online resources if you want to use similar tools, whether that's a spreadsheet like I use, or there are some websites and apps out there essentially that can help you track your gear list and your pack weight and all that. So uh, if you guys want to go check that out at the XO blog, we'll have a link in the show description for that as well. But hey man, revisiting a six-year-old episode, it was kind of like painful for me, Steve, to go back because to do this comparison, I had to listen to that six-year-old episode from back then. I was like, gosh, we were four episodes into a podcast and didn't know how to make a podcast. And some of it was kind of terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, audio wasn't as great and um, for sure. But, you know, we, I think we did a good job getting started. So, yeah, it wasn't too bad. It was funny because I, uh, I referenced in the, in that show saying tonight, like, Hey, it's a night we're talking about. It just made me think of how we used to do these at eight and nine o'clock at night all the time. Cause oh, I had a man. day job and yeah, those were the days. Those were the days. Those were the days. All right. So we are basically in this episode, we're going to go in the same order we did in the prior episode and in that prior episode, 
we talked about the pack. And so what pack were you using then, Steve, and what do you primarily use now? Well, obviously XO. Uh, <laughs> so back then- Good to the see you stuck with yeah. it. Yeah, you know, got some loyalty there. Um, back, yeah, I was running 3,500. When I started designing K3, you know, the 3,500 was always too big for me. Uh, and so that's really what like drove me to kind of do that 32. I wanted something that filled out my pack nicely for that typical, I would say three night, four day trip here that I do in Idaho. So that's what, uh, what I designed the 3,200 around. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm, um, well, quote unquote using. I've also uh, been hunting with prototypes the last two years that are variations of the 3200. So right in that, you know, 32, 33, 3400 range um, seems to be a good sweet spot for me. Yeah. And then accessory wise, uh, what do you use? Because we kind of detailed that back then. So we should hit it now. Uh, how do you kind of complete the pack setup? Uh, just really one hip belt pouch. I run on the right side and put a rangefinder in there or a camera in there. Other than that, um, I guess I do run stash pockets. Sorry, I take that for granted. Um, I, I actually like to run my stash pocket in the water bladder sleeve from the top. And then that way I can just get really quick access to whatever I throw in there. And then um, I do have a first aid. My first aid kit kind of backup stuff is in a stash pocket that more often than not, I just throw in the bottom of the pack. So it's like kind of out of the way because I really don't need that stuff very often. Yeah. Yeah. Similar for me, I was using the 3,500, um, obviously depends on the trip now having access to anything I want at any time, but, uh, yeah, totally dependent. Like if you're sticking with that three to four day territory, Steve, I love the 3,200 bag. Obviously if guys are getting up into five to seven days, you, you need to step up to the 4,800 in most cases. So either one of those would be my go-tos and great option. Um, and like you, I tend to keep it pretty simple accessory wise, I run one hip belt pouch. Um, that's one thing that stood out to me. Listen back to the old episode as I was talking about how I ran one hip belt pouch because I like to keep the other side of the hip belt open for uh, bear spray or firearm. And I used to do that a lot more than I do now. I uh, often in the lower 48, I'm not carrying a bear spray or a firearm. Obviously in Alaska, I may, uh, if I was in Grizz country, I would, but you know, if I was in back then, six years ago, if I was in the back country of Idaho or Colorado, what have you, I was prone to carrying something. And I guess personally, just not having really any encounters or concerns. I just don't carry that if I don't have to, but, um, I still stick with one hip belt pouch because it's really all I need. Stash pockets are great. And that's pretty simple for me. Um, for accessories. So not only highlighting gear, but just a change in my mind and a question we see come up from podcast listeners is concerns about bear spray and pistols. And I certainly wouldn't talk anyone out of it. I would just say for guys that are, you know, maybe newer with less experience and more concerned about bears, like don't think you're going to go on one backcountry hunt and get eaten in the night. Obviously take precautions, do whatever makes you feel comfortable, but that's definitely one thing that stood out to me that's changed in the last six years. I'm just much less concerned about that. Yeah. I, I not, I mean, I've had encounters with wolves and lions. I've never had a close bear encounter, but uh, obviously that's a lot of days in the field over my life. And I just, in a lower 48, I just don't think it's something that's um, reasonable to, to fear and, and worry about. 
So moving on from PAC, uh, we talked about shelters next. Um, Steve, you mentioned a couple of different options on that uh, podcast. Then one of those, which was newer to you at the time, was running a tarp and a bivy, which uh, if folks listen to the podcast, they've probably heard you talk about plenty since. But I found it interesting that in that show, you said you've been hesitant to run floorless shelters. Yeah. Um, so number one, how has the gear changed for you? But how's your mindset uh, changed accordingly? Yeah, I just kind of absolutely love the system now. It's got a few drawbacks, but for the most part, I can work around it. You know, if it's uh, snowed, I just kick out the snow, right? <laughs> like it's not that big of a deal. Uh, the weather concern is still there. I, I've been very lucky in that, you know, I don't take the bivy sack if I'm, if the, you know, the weather forecast is calling for bad weather. Like that's where, uh, we always, I always have my tote and I, when I'm leaving my house, I always have that a tent inside the tote. And, um, you know, if the weather turns bad, then typically, typically before I leave the house, I know, right. That the weather's going to be bad or not, but, um, it's always there just in case. So if it's questionable, I'll pull out the in reach and, and do a weather update right there at the trailhead before I take off. And also the duration of the hunt would dictate some of that. If it's just one night or two nights and it's questionable, I'll just stick with the baby sack and tarp because, Worst case, I have like one really bad night of sleep. It's not the end of the world. Um, and then, you know, but yeah, if it's bad weather, then I take the full on tent. But the, uh, the verse, I, I went back and listened to that episode as well. And I was worried about the footprint of the tarp. Right. And what I've found is quite opposite to be true. I've been able to pitch that thing um, in so many variations that uh, in different places and deer beds and you know half the time i'd sleep on game trails or uh, or or just hiking trails uh, that are you know you get a nice little flat spot and they're like perfect to kick it out a little bit and make it 20 inches wide and throw the pad in there and get a nice little cozy home for the night so it's definitely my go-to setup when the weather is um anything but bad so uh when basically i've three tents kind of in my arsenal of sleeping system so you got the the baby, baby sack and tarp. I've got the uh, tarp tent, uh, Eon Lee, which is, a, it's really not that much heavier than the baby sack and tarp. Uh, almost like you're talking an ounce or two, but it is, um, you know, it's a little bit more involved in the setup, not terrible, but, uh, um, it's a great option for when the weather's bad and it's a, a small solo tent and then still have a uh, Hilleberg, um, and hand two use that quite a bit last year. You, Boschman, I used it when we went on the sheep hunt in Alaska. We basically just ran the shelter um, of that. The not, Sorry, not the shelter, the um, the uh, shell um, of it without the inner and then ran baby sacks on the inside. And it was kind of the same concept of when the weather's nice and we're in a spot where it's hard to find a flat area, we've got the baby sack. We just crawl in there and sleep under the stars when it is crappy weather and we need to get underneath the shell of that to stay protected from the wind and rain, then we'll take the time to find a flat spot and, and pitch that sucker. And it was a really great combination that I plan to do that more here in the future. Yeah. That's a good, perfect example of kind of having an arsenal of options, which, you know, not everyone can do right away, but if you can over years kind of like extend your options and, and find some versatility, uh, it's really helpful for sure. Um, Back then, I was using the Seek Outside Cimarron, um, and that was primarily, I was splitting that with my elk hunting partner, Jared, and we were just typically then 
more prone to packing in and essentially setting up a backcountry base camp and hunting from there. Um, we would move if we needed to, but we weren't necessarily as mobily minded uh, as we are now. And so the Seek Outside Cimarron worked well for that. You know, it's a, it's a good shelter size for two men plus gear, provides comfort, um, things like that. But, you know, it has its downsides of, uh, of setup and footprint and going back to everything you just said, you, you have to find a good spot to put that sucker. Um, even if I'm hunting with Jared now, we tend to be more mobile um, and just want more options. And so like the shelter I've been using all last year, continue to use this year. absolutely love it. It's called um, The One and it's from Gassamer Gear. And uh, it's a light trekking pole supported one man tent, uh, an all-in-one design. So not a separate um, fly in the inner um, and not a floorless shelter, but kind of an all-in-one. So it does have a bathtub, has netted walls, as well as the fly all built in. Um, really easy to ventilate it, really easy to lock it down in bad weather, uh, good vestibule space for a pack or to cook in. And even though I'm 6'2", 6'3", and a bigger guy, and most one-man shelters feel like a coffin, uh, this one has enough space where I can not only lay out and sleep comfortably, but sit up in bad weather, change clothes, do stuff like that. So um, I've been really satisfied uh, with that shelter and it's definitely proven to have benefits um, still has a small footprint. And so for being more mobile um, and not having to do with finding perfect site selection, as we covered it, it's ideal. So it's another thing where kind of our hunting styles changed a bit. And then you see that reflect in the gear choices where we don't want a big shelter. We're not using a shared shelter. Um, and when we're more mobile, it's much easier to have each guy have his own shelter, smaller footprint, set up their own, you know, little spot that you can dig out, kick out and be good to go. It is nice. Like having a shared shelter on longer hunts or bad weather, if you are doing a base camp, obviously it has its advantages, right? If you're stuck in the tent, it's one thing to yell across, you know, 10 yards at each other, um, from your own personal shelter versus like sitting together and playing cards or what have you in uh, a shelter together. So pros and cons, but in general, for a lot of, especially archery season, uh, I tend to think smaller is better. Yeah. Um, sleeping pad. I think Steve, then you mentioned you were running the Thermarest Neo Air. Yeah. I kind of, I went full circle and I'm running it again. Uh, <laughs> He's yeah, back. I'm, I'm back. Yeah. I, so ran, I'm sure I ran it for quite a few years after that podcast the mistake I found that I used to do was inflate it too much. Right. Um, I thought just for some reason you need to inflate it fully and have it kind of be fairly firm and rigid. And I used to not pack a pillow. Uh, so then I, you know, my sleep just continued to like get worse and worse and worse to where I was just miserable. And by day two or three of a hunt, you know, you're just dragging. So I started looking at other pads, came across the sea to summit comfort plus that red one. It's an incredible pad but obviously just very heavy. It's, I think that the one I have is 26 ounces. I think that they did some update to it, but now it's like 28 or 29 ounces. It's a pretty heavy pad compared to a Neo air. That's 12, 13 ounces. So, uh, went back. I ordered the Neo air for something, had a, a hunt that it was like, yeah, this is going to be tough. I need, you know, I'm going to start scrapping ounces again. And, um, and it was a random thing that my back, uh, was really, really bad. This was just last, um, 
last year, uh, last March, April, something like that. And so I was sleeping on the floor in the bedroom just because I needed like something really firm. So I went down and grabbed my sleeping pads and uh, I was sleeping on the Comfort Plus and then I got the Neo Air and I figured I just through that, like sleeping on it every night for a month, I figured out that, um, man, if I run way lower pressure on this, it's quite comfortable. And I had like a, a nice pillow, right, that I pulled off the bed. And so that's what led me to like, okay, I'm going to run lower pressure on this. I'm going to order a fairly comfy pillow. I think I've got a Sea to Summit pillow, like down pillow, they call it. It's got like a little, little bit of down in the top of it, which really makes no, you know, has no effect on anything. But, um, and yeah, used that all last year and was really, really happy with it. Slept, slept great. I can sleep on my side without pressure points um, or, or greatly reduced from putting too much pressure in the pad. And that um, Neo Air has uh, Neo Air X Lite, I think it's called, has great R value. It's like 4.2, so it's super warm, uh, super light. And frankly, I've had very, very little issues with those over the years of leaking. I think I popped one and it was my fault that I stuck it on top of a really sharp stick. I still um, take, you know, a, a minute or so just to wherever I pitch the pad. I kick it out with my foot and then I'll take my hand and just kind of rub it over the area, make sure there's nothing sharp that I'm not seeing and throw the pad down and just take that little bit of extra precaution and have had really good results. Yeah. And that's generally in your bivy as well. So you got some layer of protection from the ground. Correct. Yeah. Always, uh, you know, 90% of the time it's in a bivy sack and then the other 10% with a tent four underneath it. So, but still like what I've, you know, if there's a sharp stick underneath there, it doesn't it's matter. Through. It's going, yeah. it's going to poke through like what happened to me on that, well, I popped it um, on an elk hunt with Tyler. I think it was 2018. And it was like right in the middle of the night. And I went to like, I think, shift my sleeping bag and kind of like, uh, you know what I mean? Like it was twisted up on me and went to shift it, and like shifted my body weight real quick. And that was enough to like push it over the stick and pop. There it went. So mm-hmm. um, good reason to have uh, good patches and stuff because uh, I was able to patch it up pretty quickly and held air the rest of the night and was good to go. Cool. Yeah, I did. Uh, I didn't notice on that original episode. None of us really mentioned a pillow. I think we kind of referred to balling up our puffy jacket as a pillow. But uh, you and I both talked, Steve, about how critical that is now. And used to for like, I remember a couple of years, I was like, God, this is like such a luxury. But it's a you know three ounce luxury. And now I'm like, that's not even a luxury. It's just a complete necessity for sleep. Yeah, I, it's 100 necessity for me. I don't know if that's a getting older thing or what. I definitely um, just need to be comfortable to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Back then I was running, um, the big Agnes Q core and I, I kind of call it the original one. Cause I think at the time it's, it was the only one, it was, uh, like a gray one. Um, back then I think it was a new model. And since then they've made updates to it and changes to it. And I think there's multiple different versions of a Q core. Um, that original Q core is a good pad. Wasn't the lightest, but it was pretty comfortable, pretty warm, still have it actually. And it's going strong. Um, I had at one point upgraded to, I think it was the Q core AXL. Uh, it was a red one. Um, and it was not durable at all and was pretty cold. Um, it didn't last very long, but even the nights I did sleep on it, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it, it slept cold for sure. So I wasn't super impressed. I I've only played briefly with, more updated versions of that i think they're on like an slx or something now and i think it's better honestly than that axl was um but the pad i'm using now and have been for a year and a half probably is the nemo tensor alpine 
Um, and prior even to that, I was using the, the standard Nemo tensor um, for, gosh, probably three years, I think. Um, so the Alpine is basically the latest, greatest version. Um, may have been new for 2020, I don't recall, but um, it's lighter than the previous tensor, yet warmer, has been very durable, is very comfortable. Um, definitely not looking to make any changes there. So uh, that Nemo. Nemo tensor Alpine's great choice. What's what's cool and what's changed for me is the new standardized method that they have for testing R values and sleeping pads. I, same experience with Big Agnes was they were comfortable but cold. Like anyone that I ever tried was really cold. And even though they said in their marketing material, you know, they'd gave it an R value, or I think at one point they switched to a temperature range. Once they came out with that standardized testing, it basically verified what I experienced was my thermarest. They, I think back then they rated it at three something, 3.2, and it slept really warm. And then I get on a big Agnes that they rated at 3.2 or 3.5, and I slept really cold. And when they you know, came out with that, all their R values went down, Thermarest R values went up, uh, and it made a lot of sense. So to me, just a general rule, you know, low threes, 3.2 is bare minimum what I would be running. Really higher threes, closer to four, I think is a very good. Um, when we're talking hunting season, September, October, November, temps, you know, in the twenties, the, you know, that four is a really good range to shoot for in that R value. Yeah. And that's regardless of sleeping bag or quilt. Mm-hmm. It, even something in the fours, like it's, it's a warm pad, but even in mild September conditions, um, or late summer, but you know, at elevation when it's cool, but not cold, like I don't find those to be too warm. Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty universal to go with something in that range. I'd say, yeah, there's not really a downside to that at all. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that stands out to me on sleeping pads that's changed in six years. Well, I guess there's a couple, but, um, valve systems have definitely gotten better, um, both for inflation and deflation. And so back then you'd see more and more pads with like kind of that twist valve and then, uh, anymore, I don't know what you'd call them, but basically, you know, kind of the tab that you pull. Um, and most of them, like on my Nemo, there's kind of two stages to that is you can pull, um, both tabs essentially. And it just is a wide open, quick dump of all of the air. So as you're packing up the pad, it makes it much easier versus back in the day when you had the little twist valve and you're like kind of pushing pressure out incrementally, um, it's much easier to pack the pad up. And then kind of with that middle stage of where you pull the tab and then there's usually some sort of uh, little push, almost like nipple valve, where you can just kind of fine tune, going back to what we were talking about, Steve, on pressure. Um, it's just much easier to fine tune the pressure um, with newer valve designs. And they've also honestly just been more like secure and reliable for me. Um, so that's one thing that's, I think, changed kind of in general on, on several pads. And the other is just internal baffle structure. Um, you know, going back then you'd see more and more pads that were just these straight kind of like long open chambers. Um, but they've been able to do some neat things with, uh, intermittent baffles and like almost internal structure of pads without adding much weight that truly can make a difference on both comfort as well as just honestly air distribution. And so as you, you know, being a side sleeper, on some older pads where you didn't have that distribution managed well, you'd really, the hip would push down and just push air out to the perimeter. And now you don't get as much of that effect. So um, those are definitely changes I've noticed just kind of in general in six years on the, on pads. Yeah, definitely a new fan of the, the new or a big fan of the new valves, the 
really the biggest issue. Like my one of my main complaints with the Neo Air back in the day was to deflate it. I would literally like the second I got out of my sleeping bag, open the valve and then go make coffee and hang out and camp and get ready and then come back. And hopefully most of the air was out of it uh, mm-hmm. you know, 20 minutes later. Or if it wasn't, then you had to sit there and squeeze it. And, you know, it's it's one of those deals that we're talking a couple minutes tops, not even that, but it's just in the morning, you're cold, you're, you're hungry, you just want to get hunting. You're probably running late because you slept 10 minutes longer than you meant to or 20 minutes longer. Uh, and so that extra 60 seconds, you know, two minutes, whatever it is uh, to get the air out of the pad is just a pain in the ass. And so now the new valves, you flick it open and all the air is out of it in 10 seconds. They're so awesome. Yeah. Um, keeping on sleeping stuff, we talked about sleeping bags and kind of a, what was a pretty new concept, uh, at least in our world at the time was Steve, I think you had just gotten your first quilt at that point in time. Uh, yeah. When we did the podcast in 15. So my first quilt was in 14. Yeah. Um, I haven't, haven't gone back to sleeping bag. <laughs> that speaks for itself. They're just freaking awesome. I have two quilts now, uh, both from enlightened equipment, uh, there, I have like a 25 degree one and then a 10 degree one depending on the hunt that i'm doing and they're just awesome yeah they're um your your catabatic is definitely a better built better quality quilt um they're just you know apples to apples a few ounces heavier and i'm always such a weight weenie that i've uh, yet to pull the trigger on the catabatic i i bought one but it was too small and sold it to a buddy and then just have my two enlightened equipments yeah so back then you had just uh because I pulled the specs from what you said, you would just try to hammock your quilt and it was a 30 degree quilt and it was like 14 mm-hmm. ounces. And I know that I think even on a couple of the cat or even at light equipments you've played with since then, like, as you just said, trying to chase like ounces and grams, what have you found to be kind of like going too light and sacrificing warmth? Cause I know you've bounced around with different options. If anything, I think my 25 degree in light equipment, it uses their 10 denier fabric. And I, I had uh, actually put more down in it myself. I remember talking about that on a podcast where I cut it open and made a giant mess of down feathers floating around everywhere. Um, the, I, it's, I got it at like 17 and a half ounces right now. And I, to me that like the, the fabric is the fabric, no matter what company tend to near fabrics going to be with like within 0.1 ounces of it, it's each other. Right. Um, and there's a little bit of construction. Obviously, if you look at a catabatic, they, they use a, like a really nice kind of heavy binding, elastic binding around the outside edge. So it kind of naturally wants to like shrink back in and hug you. And that's what one of the things that makes them so warm and that adds some weight, but really, yeah, the main thing you're looking at when you're comparing brands is just, you need to go look at how much down fill they're putting inside the, the quilt. And it does vary a lot from 850 to 950. You can kind of see like they'll, they'll show their 20 degree quilt and they're going to say there's 15 and a half ounces of 850 fill uh, and 13 and a half ounces of 950 fill, right? So that 950 just takes up, you know, it's less feathers to eat up the same amount of space. Uh, I'm not convinced actually that 950 is better than 850. You get the weight savings, but I think because there's less down in there, it's, it's more apt to compress easier. Um, yes, in a perfect world when everything's lofted up, and there's nothing else pushing on it that uh, it's better. But I think um, in reality, probably the 850 is a, a better, more durable fill that's going to last you longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I did listen to that. Uh, so I listened to the episode that 
talking about DWR treatments, um, my experiment stuffing down into the into that one enlightened equipment taught me how well DWR coatings really work. It's quite impressive. Um, I mean, I tried to wet those feathers down to get them in there easier, and it was not an easy task. They they really did not want to soak up water. So that's that's pretty cool advancement that's changed since then as well. Yeah, I remember I had just uh, I was running a Sierra Design sleeping bag, a mummy bag. It was called the Zisu um, Twelve, and at the time it was and it was new to their line, but it was honestly pretty new to the market of having a hydrophobic um, or water resistant down. And yeah, it, not only in that bag, but in every experience I've had with a, a similar type of product sense and the stuff definitely works well. Um, it's not the same water resistance as synthetic, but it also, in my opinion, gives you more benefits. And that was one note I had of you go back six years and even experience prior to that. I mean, you and I, for the most part have run down for almost everything and even hunting different States and different seasons and stuff. It's like with some common sense and care, I'm just not really concerned about having a down sleeping bag. And yes, there's exceptions to that, um, for certain localities, but I would just say uh, once again, for what most guys are doing with some common sense, like I wouldn't be concerned about having down versus synthetic. Oh, absolutely. You just get better performance for the weight, especially. So yeah. Um, yeah, I went, I don't know. It was probably two years after that, Steve, maybe, um, I went to the quilt, went with catabatic and absolutely love it. I will, I will say one thing that, um, I used to be more diligent with some prior sleeping bags about washing them. And with my catabatic, I honestly don't know that I've washed it until like three weeks ago. Um, just cause it always performed so well. It was always really lofty. I never felt like it was losing loft or losing warmth and just kind of neglected it. And I washed it recently and it's like back to being I, like for, I get think, I think I forgot how just puffy it was when it was brand new. Like it came out, looked new, looked way overfilled. Like I was like, Holy cow, make it, it makes a difference. Um, so if you guys hearing this and like me have a down bag of some sort of neglect, washing it, uh, do it, man. Like I did it for too long and it definitely can, can bring you some new life and new loft back for sure. Uh, let's see. Cook stove was next, Steve. Um, I'm sure this was, yeah, for sure. This was before we had done our stove test. Um, yeah. but back then using a jet boil, uh, soul and what was changed for you since then? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> when they discontinued the titanium one I bought, uh, I think I was a dealer with Jetboil at the time through SNS Archery. And I bought two or three of them. I think I bought three and I gave one to somebody at some point, which I'm regretting. But um, I've got two left. The fins on them are deteriorating. Like on the one I have has got uh, that I used most of last year has got like four fins missing in one spot. So that you got to be really careful because the heat just shoots out of that thing like a torch. Uh, so I got to point it like away from anything that's flammable, my leg um, or the tent or whatever. So that's still, I have not seen anything come out on the market that's comparable. I've, uh, I did upgrade Jetboil came out with, it's probably been three, four or five years ago. They did come out with an upgraded burner. It's slightly heavier, but it does regulate better. Uh, I, I believe it's more fuel efficient. I haven't tested that. Uh, I think it's a, a pretty minor thing, but any fuel efficiency gains, you know, over the week long hunt, 
you know, that, that can be awesome. That can, you know, three or four extra boils is a whole extra day out of one canister. So that, that does matter. But what I've noticed that I really like about the new burners is how low it simmers. So, you know, oftentimes uh, pack top ramen on a hunt and you need to just kind of lightly boil the water. And at the old one, there wasn't a lightly boil option. It was uh, turn it on, water gets ripping, starts to pull over, pour over the top. I'd uh, shut it off, let it sit there for 30 seconds, click it back on and do that like two or three times, right? Just to get the water like hot again, let the noodles kind of soften up with the new one. I've seen that I can just turn that thing down to truly simmer and it just, just has a rolling boil. That's really nice. So it's definitely worth a little bit of extra weight. And then if, um, said I should do some fuel efficiency tests just to see what the difference is, but, uh, that weight could easily be made up for and having to pack one, one extra less canister if needed on a long hunt. Yeah. Uh, we did the fuel test, the, uh, test. I don't know what year that was 16, 17, um, Jeff world just came out on top when we, we did freezer tests and wind tests and different things and fuel efficiency tests and jet oil was the best. I, I know I've talked to people that have had issues with them. Some people complain about the igniters. They don't work forever. Um, like the one I was using last year before I bought the new burner, you know, I had to click that thing, you know, sometimes it was once, sometimes it was 15 times. It'd be kind of annoying, but to me, that's still better than the option of having to go dig out a lighter every single time. Yeah, same here. Still using, uh, not only still using AJEP oil, but using the exact same unit that I was six years ago. Um, and it's still going strong. And it, obviously from the test we did, I, I have other options, have a MSR and an Optimus and a GSI and a Soto and, you know, basically a drawer full of stuff. And I'll occasionally take it if we're car camping or mix stuff up or get a wild hair and take something else on a backpacking trip or a hunt. But yeah, if I just grab one and pick my favorite it's still that exact same unit so yeah the jet oil came out with a new model just this year that's um they call it titanium which pisses me off because i think the <laughs> the burner you know, marketing bull bull crap uh i believe the stove is the, or the actual pot is still aluminum but maybe they use a little bit of titanium in the in the burner i mean it's it's stupid because it it's just marketing hype um but it's more of a it's kind of a hybrid, more of a traditional style stove um, mm-hmm. that maybe I haven't used it. But at first I saw it, I was like, oh, finally, they came out with a new lightweight replacement for the sole. And it was like, oh, never mind. They, they didn't. Uh, it's just marketing. So, I mean, that's a, you know, maybe a point to touch on for guys looking at stoves, kind of the, the all-in-one canister stove, jet boil, MSR wind burner, that type of thing versus, uh, you know, a small backpacking stove with a separate pot that isn't integrated. Um, so something like a pocket rocket or what have you, um, you know, the, the integrated stoves, yes, are more efficient, but honestly, one thing that's just big for me is I want it attached. Um, especially in the backcountry, you're sitting on a hillside, making coffee or ramen or something like that. Like you're not always on a clean surface and don't always have flat ground. And I just want something that's attached and integrated and more stable. Like, I'll pack a, a separate little stove just to heat up coffee or something if I'm camping with the family and working on a table and that's all well and good. But uh, that's just like a maybe a, a minor thing that guys wouldn't think of, but truly makes a difference I've in my experience when you're truly out on a hunt. Yeah. Yeah. We hit some miscellaneous stuff, cooking related, Steve, we're, it's boring as it is. We talked about our utensils. Uh, you said you're using a jet boil telescopic fork uh, back then and it, you know, uh, obviously telescopic it packs up easy plastic cheap all that good stuff uh, do you still use that 
Yes, I have the exact same one. <laughs> I was listening to that podcast. Like, that fork is still rocking, man. Uh, yeah, it's still going strong. I lost it for, I think I had, oh, I'd put it in a pack and it was buried in a side pocket or something. And I, I lost it for like a year and then was cleaning out the garage and found it. And I was like, yeah, my fork. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I mean, a fork is a fork, is a fork, right? Like it, it just has one job to do. So that um, does it well. The only thing for me, though, a fork being a fork is I moved to a long handle fork and that's a game changer for mm, me. Yeah, like if you're, yeah. you know, especially, uh, you know, the bigger bag meals, not having to reach down in there and essentially get your, your hand dirty or what have you. I love the idea of something telescopic, small, compact. Um, but after I moved to a long handle spork, I really like it for digging down um, and eating meals with essentially less mess. And then what I do is, uh, what I'll typically do is our, our long vertical side pockets on the pack. There's a little, uh, hang tab in the top of those and I'll just clip it to that. Um, and so it makes it secure out of the way and easy to pack away. But that was a minor difference for me of in the last six years, moving to something with a long handle. And I don't see myself going back from that. Another little thing I thought of, I don't, I don't think I used to do, I'm not sure if you ever did Steve, but I never really thought about, uh, insulating meals, like while they're rehydrating. So whether you're using a dehydrated or freeze dried meal, but, uh, that's something I intentionally do now, whether I pack like a little meal koozie or just use my puffy, um, just to keep that meal nice and piping hot. And I think part of the reason this changed for me is back then I was using more mountain house uh, freeze-dried stuff and it rehydrates quicker. But as I move to dehydrated options, which have a longer cook time, both my own DIY options or something like Heather's Choice or what have you, I realized that meal sitting for maybe 15 minutes versus eight minutes or what have you is more prone to cool off. And so now, again, whether I'm just using my puffy jacket or something, I just kind of, I'm a little more conscious of insulating that meal while it rehydrates. Yeah, that we did that when on the sheep hunt last year. We stopped by Heather's Choice, and she gave us the their um, the uh, I think who is the company Hyperlight Gear. It's like a little insulated koozie that you can drop the meal into, and we took it on the hunt, and it was it's freaking nice because when you're at elevation, those things sometimes need 25, 30 minutes to rehydrate. And, you know, sometimes would be lukewarm by the end of it. So just to throw it in that and cook it. And then also it's like a little bit of, um, um, you know, when you, when you go to eat the meal, it's keeping your hand warm, a little insulation there to keep your hand away from the meal. And, um, yeah, I was really impressed with it for sure. You can achieve similar results. Like you said, with stuffing it in a puffy stuffing it in your sleeping bag, whatever, just put it in a beanie, uh, anything like that. Water filter, Steve, uh, Sawyer squeeze back then for you. And most of the years since, but, uh, I know even here recently I've been trying some other options. Yeah. So Sawyer squeeze, uh, they, you know, they came out with their mini and then they came out with the micro, neither one of those perform the mini sucks, the micro, it just, it, it, the flow rate is half and then it clogs four times as fast. The micro is okay. We, I ran that for maybe one season or two seasons, just cause we ordered a bunch we sell them through S and S uh, and, and they're super cheap, uh, you know, like at, at our dealer cost, I think it was like 12 bucks because they sell for like 20 retailers or something. So it's like, I kind of was just going through one every two weeks. Um, and, uh, and then I went back to just a regular Sawyer and then on the death hike, the first year was, uh, or this year is the first time I've 
swapped it up. I was just researching filters and came across the uh, Kaden B free. And I've got one, you know, I've got two nights out there in the field, one trip. Uh, I was very, very happy with it. They have a, a much wider mouth for the dirty water bag because the thread kind of the filter kind of like screws on top and it sits inside the bag instead of being external. And uh, I was really, really happy with it. Very limited experience. The uh, flow rate was exceptional though. And then just filling up the bag in a Creek, that's something with, you know, the Sawyer bags or the platypus bags or whatever you're using, you're, you're limited to that kind of standard 16 ounce water bottle uh, size cap. And it just takes a little bit of water time to get the water in there. And with that, the bigger mouth on the, the uh, Kaden and be free, man, it's just like, just dip it in the stream and it was full within seconds. Uh, so that was kind of nice. You know, just, again, one of those stupid things that if you can take something that takes 30 seconds or 45 seconds and turn it into five, just, they just add up on a hunt and uh, just making life easier and being more efficient out there. So plan to run that this year. Check it out. I did see platypus came out with their own filter. Um, so I, I think a Sawyer filters at one liter a minute. The Kated and be free filters at two liters a minute. And it's a legit, I had a one liter Nalgene bottle and within 30 seconds, it's full. It's very impressive. Um, and then the one I saw that came out from platypus looks more like a Sawyer kind of mini, but they're saying it's three liters a minute. So I don't know how they're filtering water and getting to go through that fast, but um, that's intriguing to me to check, check that out. And I uh, may, you know, again, these things are so cheap at 20, 30 bucks. It's, it's, not a big penalty to order one and try it out on a scouting trip or something and see how it goes. Yeah. Going back to what I talked prior about kind of our, you know, we were more prone to doing a back backcountry base camp back then. Um, I was using a gravity system, which has its advantages where, you know, you can fill up four liters of dirty water and instead of sitting there squeezing or pumping, just let it hang and let it filter. And that is a nice option if you are in a base camp style uh i still think it's a great option i just again going back to being more mobile i don't find myself uh with that same kind of need um and so i just wanted something that was quicker to go on the way and for quite a few years now since then as you had turned me on steve had been using the sawyers and like you said i've done the standard the micro the mini um i still use the micro most as you said it doesn't it has a good flow rate while it's new doesn't last as long but is cheap uh, it's definitely better than the mini. Um, and that's, yeah, that's what I've mostly stuck with. I've been tempted by some other things, um, but haven't fully changed there. Um, and then to go along with that, you know, we've, we've talked about like the dirtier storage bags. If you are going to use a Sawyer, uh, their bags will break period. Um, so don't rely on just those. There's good options out there from, uh, platypus and CNOC and other options, where you can direct thread a Sawyer filter to the bag. Another thing to kind of keep in mind, um, I, I don't know that I've seen many guys do or necessarily think of, because you just think of threading the filter to the bag, which works fine. But what I've started doing is I had an older bladder um, that had a quick disconnect. And I'll basically use that as my dirty bag now. Um, I like it because it's a big zip bladder, so it's easier to fill up. Um, it's also secure. So if I want to fill it up and not filter immediately, but carry water really easy to do and it's secure, but with that quick disconnect system, I'm basically using, um, you know, Sawyer's fast fill adapter 
um, and essentially plugging the filter in via short tube with a quick disconnect to the dirty source rather than threading it onto a dirty bag, if that makes sense. So um, there's all kinds of options on like dirty water storage and transportation there. Um, and it's just, again, a matter of finding what works for you. Just don't solely trust Sawyer bags because they'll fail for sure. Yeah. And uh, worth noting again, that these freeze, these filters, uh, it's called like ceramic hollow fiber, I believe they can freeze if they're full of water. Right. So you just have to be um, aware of that. And, and really I just shake out the filter when I'm done using it. Uh, the, the bee freeze super easy. All the elements are exposed. Just take the filter and shake it. And I think you're going to pretty much eliminate that variable and not have to worry about it. Steve, for the most part, I think you were still running a platypus bladder back then. Uh, for the most am. part now, right? Yeah. Yep. Not much platypus. change there. Nothing changed there. Uh, platypus hoser, three liter. Um, uh, works great. It's lightweight. It doesn't add taste to the water. I've just never had any issues with it. So Yeah. Um, yeah, I was doing the same on the bladder. And one thing that kind of changed for me is back then I would have my bladder and then I would carry some sort of bottle for like flavored drinks and uh, typically would use a smart water bottle. I would just pick one up at the gas station or what have you and then carry it for the week. And those work great. They're tall, they're slender, they're easy to get in out of the pockets. Um, they're very light, durable. Uh, they can thread to a Sawyer in a pinch. Like, so there's a lot of pros about them. What I got annoyed with was one, they can, you know, be crunchy sound wise if you're squeezing them or if you bump up against things. And then when they are empty, they, you know, it's dead space. And so for kind of my extra flavored drink, um, I've just gone to using a platypus bottle uh, with a little uh, sport top to it. So a little one liter soft bottle, I can fill it up, drink it when I'm not using it or it's not full can roll it up and it's just much more out of the way it's quieter. And so that's like a minor change. Um, and then I have, you know, depend on the trip, uh, both the length of the trip, the time of year and the expected availability of water, meaning how much water I need to carry at any one time. I do integrate Nalgene's in place of bladders, um, depending on all those variables I just mentioned. So, um, and then if I do an Nalgene, I don't use your, the standard kind of Lexan Nalgene, but I use what's called their silo, uh, which is a taller, um, drawn a blank on the name, but it's a softer material. And it's actually the bigger one in the silo in that different material is actually, I think lighter than yeah, the it is. Nalgene. So yeah, I ordered one for the death hike because we're worried about water freezing. Right. And it's, it's, um, yeah, like one or two ounces lighter than a standard Nalgene. It's pretty, doesn't make sense when you look at it, but put it on a scale and it is. Yeah. So it's higher capacity, but lighter also easier to just kind of reach because it is taller. Um, and so that's kind of my Nalgene of choice. If I'm running an Nalgene, I don't think, unless I totally spaced out, Steve, we didn't talk too much about food really on that episode, right? Mm, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. I didn't I think get that did. far listening to it. Okay. If it's there. So without getting like nitty gritty on this is exactly what I pack. Cause I don't think that that's necessarily always incredibly consistent, but if your mind, like what's changed for you and how you pack and think about food six years ago versus now. 
yeah, a lot of it we can attribute to Kyle Camp, um, Valley to Peak Nutrition, helping us out a lot. What kind of for me started on the first hundred mile death hike where um, we had done a couple other death hikes and and just you know when you're kind of pushing yourself that hard, food becomes pretty critical. Like making sure you get what your body needs, also get what like sounds palatable <laughs> because it's you know when it's hot and you're just completely mentally and physically exhausted. Um, some things just don't sound good anymore. It's hard to choke down. So really it's, uh, focusing more on eating carbs and sugars when I need quick energy and then fats and proteins when it's more kind of sustained recovery times. Right. So, uh, going into a climb, gummy bears have become an absolute staple. I have like three or four packet, like small packets per day and, and just use them strategically. Like, okay, I'm, we're about ready to go do this 3000 foot climb. I'm going to, you know, put down some gummy bears and just give me a little extra boost of energy getting up this thing and kind of keep my blood sugar. Um, even that's one thing I've experienced as I've been getting older is kind of these blood sugar spikes, highs and lows where I get shaky and dizzy if I'm not taking care of myself. And then, um, yeah. And then just using, um, I, I get, I, back then I was probably like really heavy on like, cl- uh, um, cliff builders bars, like protein bars. Right. And now I'm like much less of that and more, um, you know, just, I guess the big sur bars we started packing last year and those are phenomenal. They're, they're more of a, a lot more natural ingredients still to use, um, the backcountry bars are some of my favorites. Those are a staple, uh, use almond butter, uh, those almond butter packets. I use the hazelnut ones from Justin's put those on crackers, things like that. Try to pack when the hunt allows uh, and weight's not as much of an issue, I'll pack real food. I'll make a peanut butter and jelly bagel and throw it in a sandwich bag and um, just kind of random stuff like that. So one, uh, one thing I did listen to, we did talk about using noon tea or noon uh, drinks. And we did this on the hunt uh, sheep hunt last year. Tyler brought a bunch of noon tablets and we were at nighttime with our kind of before or after dinner, we were doing what we call noon tea, just, warming up some water and the jet boil and then dropping the noon tablets in there and just kind of sipping it. And, uh, that was nice. And, you know, you're kind of replenishing some electrolytes and getting some vitamins and stuff that your body needs. And so there's not really a downside to doing that. And it was kind of, um, it was nice to drink those warm. They tasted pretty good. Yeah. It's a lot of the, a lot of similar thoughts for me, you know, back then I was mostly trying to optimize weight. So I was trying to get the most calories for the least amount of weight as possible. Uh, and if you understand the basics of calories, there's no way around to do that, to be most efficient, most calorically dense, you have to have more fats, um, and somewhat less carbs and proteins simply because there's uh, more calories per ounce or per gram with fat. And that's fine. But I think there's a, there's a balance there where it's like, okay, if you just want like the lightest, most efficient calories, you're just going to be eating peanut butter and drinking olive oil type thing. Um, and that gets old fast. And so, yeah, for me, it's, I'm less concerned with like the absolute weight and more concerned with number one, fueling properly, uh, based off of the demands of the effort. And number two, uh, eating what is enjoyable slash tolerable, especially on a longer hunt when you get sick of bars and things like that. So, um, as you said, for me, that looks like more real food, packing sandwiches or something when I can, but also doing things like dehydrated fruit um, and just as much kind of real stuff as possible. Um, definitely don't avoid anything packaged. Um, 
I will try and just be like more efficient. So I used to pack like Justin's nut butter and wheat thins was like a staple. Um, but anymore, uh, nature Valley just has like nut butter bars, which is essentially nut butter already sandwiched between, uh, a cracker essentially. And so it's just, it's easier to eat less time, less waste. I'll pack a couple of those instead of, you know, wheat thins that get smashed and then Justin's nut butter packet that takes more time. So again, that's like super trivial, but just efficiency, uh, enjoy, something, you know, I just want to be able to eat and not choke down calories. Um, and definitely less quote unquote performance foods, um, less cliff products, less gels, less goos and all that stuff. Um, as you said, you could take like a gel and get a similar benefit from a gummy bear. If you break it down and gummy bears are cheaper and tastier anyway. So yeah, those are some changes that come to mind for sure. Um, we hit, uh, in that episode, we hit headlamps next, Steve. Um, I think you said you're using the Princeton tech and a black diamond spot back then. Yeah. So just using the newer version of the spot right now, I think it's called the spot 350, just a phenomenal headlamp. You know, there's really no complaints. Uh, I did try a company called BioLite came out with a headlamp and I remember seeing it. Oh, at the outdoor retailer show. And they gave me a sample to test and the first sample, um, and I kind of hosed me a good, a good reason to always have like a backup light source in your pack was when it was cold outside, there was like a, it basically wouldn't turn on. There was like a, um, restriction in there. If it was the battery was so cold that it wouldn't turn on. And so you'd have to, I didn't know it at the time, but had to like put it in your pocket for a while for it to warm up and then it would turn on for you, but it's a rechargeable headlamp. So you can't replace the batteries. I'm just not a fan of that rechargeable setup. Um, you know, in a perfect world, you charge it and it's fully charged whenever you need it, but you know, it accidentally turns on, you forget to charge it. And then when you do need it, um, you know, I was, uh, one scenario, I was literally like having to handhold it and have a battery pack plugged into it. And it wasn't really charging as fast as it was using the, the light, right. And draining the battery. So it was kind of a pain in the butt. Uh, so I've just, um, I think it was last year, went back and just got that spot. 350 and it's kind of the newest latest greatest version of it and it's pretty reliable and awesome um don't have any issues and then i ordered i think they call it the spot light um and i took just the lighting unit so i took the headband off of it and just that lighting unit it's like 0.6 ounces or something that without batteries in it and i just throw that in my extra first aid kit and that's my kind of current backup i used to have i used to pack um these little Cabela's LED lights that I bought, you know, that were super cheap and they were like clipped onto your hat. And that was always a backup, but this, you know, now I've got like a fully functioning headlamp that, um, I need that I can use if, if needed. And sometimes just something you don't want to mess with, right? Like you're, you got to hike out somewhere in the dark and your headlamp goes out on you, you fall and crack it. Um, you're basically left, like not being able to move and get out of there without a backup source. Yeah. Back then I was using uh, a black diamond spot. I'm still using a black diamond spot. Um, they've just gotten better. I think, I think I've had probably that original one six years ago, a newer one, maybe, you know, three or four years ago, and then a newer one in the last year or two. So uh, the prior ones didn't break. I just kind of upgraded because they got a little bit better and easier to use and things like that. But headlamps for me, like the, you even did going back to like stoves, we did that big headlamp comparison. Um, Honestly, there's a few key things I have to have in a headlamp and then I just don't care about the rest. 
Um, so I really want some sort of lock so that it can't come on when I don't want it to, or when it's packed in my pack or something like that. I want a red light. Um, I just really like that for camp use or in the shelter or something like that. And then I, I love the idea of recharging, but I don't want to rely solely on recharging as you just said, Steve. So, you know, like this, the black diamond that comes with, uh, it's rechargeable with its own cells, but you can pull those out and put triples, a put triple A's in. That's perfect for me. Um, and then aside from that, like I just, I don't get super concerned with like total lumens and crazy beam patterns on the main light. I do want it to be adjustable. And I've just found over the years, I honestly minimize my use of a headlamp as much as possible. Um, it's in a lot of conditions, even when you're out at night and hiking back to camp or hiking out to the truck, you just let yourself adjust. Um, you'll find that you really don't need a headlamp in many conditions, even to hike. Um, and then when I do turn it on, I essentially want as much light as I need, but not more. So I'm just not too concerned with like super high power and lumens and all that. Yeah. Stuff. There's, there's definitely been this like not practical race to have the, the most lumens in a headlamp. You know, I think back in six, seven, eight years ago, a hundred lumens was bright. And now they're up to, I think I'm on black diamonds website right now. They've got a storm 400. Um, but what they haven't figured out is yeah, they can produce 400 lumens, but the, the battery life on that is, is probably 20 minutes, right? Like, yeah. like yeah, the practical, like I take that spot 350 and it is cool. Cause if you hold the button down, you can adjust the light. And it's very rare that I run that thing at full brightness because the battery life is so terrible. Um, so it's definitely, uh, yeah, same boat as you with, I need a lock feature. I could, you know, you and I differ on the red light. I could care less. I, I try to use it and it just like, I don't know, my eyes don't adjust. I don't like using it around camp. So I just go into the kind of wide pattern led mode and turn the brightness way down just so enough that I can do camp functions and sit around and eat my, eat my dinner and things like that. Um, and then, uh, I do remember when we did the test that it sounds silly, but the quality of light and the pattern that it throws out there was like really drastic differences between different models and not that sitting around camp it doesn't matter but when you're you know you're going to be hiking through the night i think it does matter like lights up the trail and whatever's in front of you better and more consistently without kind of patchy dark spots and um i haven't done that comparison recently but i remember that you know there's no way to do that except just get a bunch of them and go in your backyard at night and turn them on and see what looks the best to you. But it, there was something there for sure. We don't use a red light and you eat the wrong kind of gummy bears, but we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing that was funny, Steve, we talked uh, in that episode six years ago about like what cameras we were running. Um, that's kind of like a, a non-issue at this point. Yep. Yeah. yeah it's so freaking awesome that cell phone, cameras are just very, very good right now. I mean, anything but professional photography. And even in, even if you know what you're doing, you can do some professional type quality photos with a, with an iPhone, or, uh, I had a Google pixel that took incredible photos at one point. Um, yeah, it's, it's really nice. That's definitely been a change for me is don't pack a camera. I mean, we, we did last year when we did the sheep hunt, cause we kind of filmed part of it. But, um, yeah, in general, if I'm just going out for hunt or you and I's elk hunt last October, we're not packing a camera, just have cell phones in the pocket. And then, um, battery banks is something that's, I think I'm, I don't even know if I was packing back then, maybe just starting to think about it, use it on a few trips here and there, but 
just uh you know charge up and be able to recharge your cell phone recharge the inreach uh, for you probably recharge your headlamp um they're pretty stinking awesome uh we had covered first aid kit um next i think for both of us it's probably the same which is essential slash pathetic first aid kits of <laughs> Tylenol PM, ibuprofen, band-aids, gauze, tape. Like that's probably about it. Yep. Yeah. So not much has changed there. Yeah. Not much has changed. I did um, on my, on my list, basically I've got like duct tape, which is typically wrapped around a lighter um, wrapped around, I, I, um, I wrap it around my water filter few other things just wherever i can a nice flat surface wrap it around trekking poles um, by trekking poles yeah anything like that i think it's worthwhile just wrapping a little bit around that stuff's invaluable um yeah cotton ball fire starter chapstick uh tylenol elite tylenol leave or elite advil one of those two um i do have these little miniature super glue kits now that it's like single use super glue and i think there's like two of them that i throw in there they're tiny like you know, they're an inch tall just for patching up a cut, right? Like I've actually used it and it works very, very well. If you can kind of get the bleeding to stop and run super glue over the top of it and hold it together, it works better than a bandaid in my opinion, because bandage is going to fall off and that super, super glue is going to last for days on there. And then last year I had reached out, um, or maybe a friend of mine had reached out about the sheep hunt and then shared his gear list and he had Benadryl on there. And it's like, I've never freaking packed Benadryl. Um, and I was like, oh, well, like, why not? Like, <laughs> I went to the store and got some Benadryl and then uh, ended up using it. Like, Boshma uh, was fairly allergic to bees. And we were like, it probably happened a dozen times. We were busting through some brush and there was beehives in there. And um, Boshma got stung like four times on the hand and hand started swelling up and, and gave him some Benadryl and knocked it back down. So, um, even if you don't think you have an allergic reaction, it's such a minor thing to carry that, uh, you know, especially on something like that, where you're truly remote and help is going to be days away from getting to you. Um, it's just the, why not have it in the pack? So, and then I didn't use it, thank God, but he, the modium AD was on there as well. If, if you were to get diarrhea and help you from, you know, take it and help you from really getting dehydrated. So, right. Yeah, I've literally, uh, I've done a fair amount of reading and research on essentially, here's what I do. Like, here's reality. As, as I said, it's pretty, it's the essentials and it's pathetic. And in, in some ways I'm probably unprepared. Um, and I've done a good amount of reading and research on like what would be beneficial to add. Uh, and I've actually started kind of compiling a list. Um, so there's a difference in what I am doing and what I think it maybe should be doing or how it could improve. Um, and I'll probably flesh that out more uh, and work on it and have also consulted with uh, some listeners of the podcast who have emergency medicine experience, uh, who are MDs, who are uh, SAR personnel, things like that. So um, there's some things in the works there that, again, I know here's maybe some recommendations on what you should consider to go to the next level or maybe what I should be doing. I just haven't done it yet. So my current pack list is essentially the same as it was. One thing that came to mind is I, I know in that first episode six years ago, I had mentioned Tenacious Tape, which I still love. It's great stuff. I, we None of us, I don't think, mentioned Luco Tape back then. And so I don't know if that was on our radar then. I, like I've, In my mind, I know I've had it for years and years, uh, at least like probably four or five years, but I don't know if I maybe 
we overlooked it then or discovered it shortly after then. But uh, Luco tapes, obviously fantastic stuff we've talked about for blister prevention and things like that. Um, another thing that stood out to me as I listened to the episode and I do it to this day, but I just maybe overlooked sharing it is my, uh, my lighter and my fire tender. I keep in an empty, uh, going back to electrolytes, those noon tablets, the canisters that those come in are nice. Have the light they have essentially a waterproof little lid and it makes a perfect setup to have a little Bic mini and your fire tender in. Um, and so I've been doing that since this episode, um, and since, but maybe that was just like a small little tip for guys. If you're looking for a waterproof way to keep a lighter and some tinder, um, consider reusing one of those little noon canisters and it works great. Um, aside from that, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple, you know, in addition to true first aid stuff and repair stuff, uh, obviously tenacious tape. I mentioned, um, little repair patches for like a sleeping pad, depending on the hunt. Like if it's a bow or rifle hunt, I may have a couple Allen keys or hex wrenches for uh, anything I think would be critical. There may have like a little bit of uh, serving for the bow. Um, I don't pretend to like, you know, I know some guys will pack like one of those manual bow presses, like cable presses. And to me, it's like if I have some sort of major malfunction with a weapon, I'm just hiking my butt back to the truck. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Steve, you mentioned the tote of at your truck, like have extras. So have tools, uh, have I mean, extra clothing, extra gear, extra water, anything you can think of. That's a kind of its own separate topic that maybe should, we should talk about is what's back in the truck for us. But um, definitely have you know capabilities uh, where if you get into a bad situation, need to make a repair or something like that you have stuff to fall on, fall back on back at your rig. Yep. Uh, kill kit is next, Steve. Um, what I think back then you mentioned game bags, cord, and I think you said you're using a Kestrel knife. Uh, what's different, if anything, for you now? Yeah, I, for quite a few years there, I was using like an outdoor edge replaceable knife. And then last three years kind of went back to a more conventional knife. I'm still fairly worthless at resharpening. <laughs> I have good friends like you that uh, get it sharp for me. And then I just like try not to abuse it too much. And then when I'm cutting up an animal, I'm uh, just careful and take my time and don't just slam it into bone, basically. Um I, yeah, I really like having like a real handled knife. I've tried some of the lightweight skeleton ones. They look great on paper because of the weight and practice having like a handle to it. It's just so nice. And I think it's just safer, right? Like you just get a better grip on the knife. I have um, Tyler Bosch introduced me to these. They're kind of like latex mechanics gloves. So they're a little bit heavier duty with like rubber um, kind of dot grips on them. And I, I really like those. Uh, haven't used them every single time on you know, the last five, six animals I've killed, but more often than not, uh, if they're in my pack and just, you know, your hands, your, your knife gets greasy, your hand gets greasy. Um, and it seems to get better kind of grip on that knife and adding a handle to it as well. Those two together, I've been very happy with that kind of combination. And then it is nice when you're done with the animal, you just pop them off and you've got clean hands. You don't got to, you know, use your water that you've got or walk over to a Creek or anything like that. You're just kind of clean hands and get the pack loaded up and off you go. So, uh, I, I don't pack a ground sheet. A lot of people do. I just see, it seems to always be a clean rock or pine limb or something like that. I can put meat on or, um, 
like my bull last year and we were 50 yards away from a big overhanging tree limb. So we just cut the quarter off and you pack it over there and hang it up. And, um, so I've never done the whole ground cloth thing. I mean, at times when I'm with somebody and they have it, it's nice. But to me, it's just like one of those, it's one more item I got to pack and account for and deal with. And the, the upside of having it is not worth the downside to me of just that one extra item on my to-do list, my checklist. Yeah. And, and rope, obviously I just pack, you know, 50 feet of super light cord. It kind of seemed to just order something on Amazon or actually last year, that cord that we use on the cinch pockets for the top of the, um, on the side pockets oh, yeah. of the pack, I, I just rolled off like 50 feet of that. And that's actually, it's pretty high quality, nice stuff and use that. And it worked great. Yeah. For me back then, it was, uh, this is pretty simple game bags, cord, a little bit of flagging tape and a knife. The things that changes, uh, I was using Havilon back then. Um, don't use one now. Just they're great. They're scary sharp, but they are scary. Um, I don't like the idea of breaking them super easy to get cuts. I don't like dealing with when you do want to change blades, what do you do with the old one? You know, guys will bury them and do stuff like that. I don't like the idea of leaving them out there. Um, obviously I don't like the idea of packing them out, like, and then just performance wise, uh, back to a fixed blade, as you mentioned. So, um, the sharpening wise, I pack a DMT, uh, diafold sharpener. Um, definitely get a lot of questions about that since you're always talking about my sharpening skills, Steve. So it's the DMT diafold. Um, is what I pack, um, with a knife. We use the Benchmade altitude a ton, but you know, there's other good options out there, um, as well. So, and then game bags have changed. Like even, you know, back then I was using, uh, game bags that were specific for boned out meat. And I just changed my preference there where I will bone something out if I have to, or if the conditions call for it or what have you. But, um, as we've talked about, Steve, I think there's advantages to keeping bone in, um, for packability, for meat quality, uh, for less waste for time. Um, so my preference now is to not bone stuff out. And so that's changed my, um, game bag preference. I will say though, if you, if you are planning on boning out meat, that your game bag choice can help you or hurt you for sure. So, um, if you know you're heading to hunt where you're going to be, um, boning everything out, I would pick a game bag that's more structured for that kind of gives you some more shape, um, versus a giant open quarter bag where that boned out meat is just going to be much more shifty and harder to load and get situated correctly. Let's see optics next, Steve. Uh, obviously optics are going to change based on the hunt the situation, you know, take elk versus mule deer, even time of year or the place of the hunt. But a couple of things you mentioned using back then, uh, was Swirl SLC. 10 by 42 binos. Uh, you talked then about kind of trying any and every spotter under the sun, which I feel like that kind of just Hasn't continues. Changed. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and then, uh, I think you were running, uh, um, a pro master five, two, five C tripod with a Vanguard pH 11 head. Yeah. So tripod, um, pro master, we sold those through S and S then they changed the design of it. Um, you know, that all these companies are, not really worried about hunters. They're more camera focused. So they added some weight and did some features that I just didn't really like. We ended up going back to the slick. Um, so I'm just running a slick six, two, four, um, just an awesome, stable, lightweight, tough tripod. have had no issues with it. The head I've have, um, there's a company called Sue Ray and 
Oh man. 95. Why 95 is the number that came to my mind, but I don't know what that um Suray VA something. Uh, <laughs> give me a sec. Uh, oh, anyways, is that the VA5? VA5. Yeah, yeah. Not 99. VA5. So VA5, yeah. Awesome head. Pulled the um to save a little bit of weight, the metal arm. It's fairly heavy. It's like three or four ounces. Pulled that off and I ordered just this little chunk of carbon on Amazon and slapped that in there and saved a bunch of weight. And it basically effectively does the exact same thing. So it dropped that head down to definitely under a pound. It's 14 ounces, something like that. So really good combination. Still looking for the perfect head. There's a company working on one right now that uh, I got to send me some prototypes and run here sooner than later. I'm super excited to check out. It seems very promising. So uh, hopefully I can spill some more details on that when it gets closer. Um, binos. Yeah. Ran SLCs forever. Uh, you know, obviously I don't live in a real world because through SNS archery, we, you know, have access to Swaro and Zeiss and Kawa and um, like just, just everything. Right. And I get to test samples and things like that. So I, I get to be fairly decent in that I can provide legitimate feedback um, on what's the best. Really for binos, obviously we talked about running those, the new Swaro Pures from a purely bino perspective. Those things are absolutely incredible. Um, the range finding binoculars that are out now, like the Zeiss and uh, that you're running and then the Swaro EL range TAs that I'm running, the from a rifle hunting perspective are just flat out incredible, you know, range and it's going to pull temperature and pressure and you know, calculate your ballistics and angles. I mean, it's, it's such a clean, amazing system to range tells you to dial 3.2 MOA, you dial 3.25, you shoot, you kill the animal. It's pretty impressive. Um, there was kind of, I have like an internal debate, like the pures from a glassing perspective are incredible, but on a rifle hunt, it's like, you need the L range TAs. So you kind of got to leave the pures at home, which suck. And not that the EL range TAs are um, subpar glass by any stretch of the imagination, but they're not pures. Uh, so that's kind of a, on a bow hunt in a perfect world, you take pures and on a rifle hunt, you take the yellow range TAs. Um, and then spine scope hasn't changed. Yeah. The basically I'm running either a Koa 55 or the Koa, um, 77 millimeter, 77, probably on a scouting trip where I'm like a little bit less weight in the pack. And if I'm worried about weight, I'll pack that 55, um, on my bighorn sheep tag here in Idaho this year, probably will be packing the 77. Just, you know, it's, it's big open country. You know, I'm going to need as much glass as I can get to help find those suckers. So, um, yeah. Is that all of them? I think that's it. Yeah. For me back then, I was just bouncing around on binos, trying different stuff. Um, I know it was running like some vortex razors and stuff for a while. Um, obviously is if People listen to the podcast. We've talked a bunch pretty recently about, as you said, range finding binos, things like that. Running the Zeiss Victory RFs now. Um, very happy with those. Um, that are uh, really right stuff. Cinch uh, bino adapter. We've talked about some more recently. Um, definitely Ooh. a standout. Is uh, a really nice inter- option. Interrupt there. Uh, a guy came by with. Uh, it's called Kestrel Glassing Systems. He was uh, up at the Northwest Mountain Challenge. Had a booth up there. And then he came by the shop and he has these 3d printed carbon fiber, um, clamps basically that like specifically, like he makes them for just about any model, the L range TAs, the pures, but he basically 3d scans the binocular 3d prints, uh, this exact clamp, um, that just clamps right onto the barrel and, and depending on the model, different places. And 
I think they're kind of expensive at 80 bucks, but if you've got a bino, why all binos don't just have threads in them, this blows my mind. Why Swirl came out with the Pures and didn't put it in it is just idiotic, um, but they've created a whole group of companies, small cottage companies that are trying to solve that solution. And the Kestrel one is really impressive. That really right stuff is, I the second I saw yours, I went and ordered it. And then I I just grabbed one of these Kestrel clamps from this guy. And um, yeah, it's it's an unbelievably clean system weighs absolutely nothing i've seen i so i was aware of kestrel in the sense that he has like this like monopod like sliding mm-hmm. support system but i wasn't aware of those uh ring adapters Good to yeah know. I, I don't know how new i don't know if it's like two weeks old or it's been around for a year that he's been doing them but um, interesting. yeah again he brought it by and it's yeah it's it's very clean got it Cool. Um, yeah, tripod. I bounce around. I still have an old ProMaster. I played more and more uh, over the last probably year and a half with like running a, a Spartan Davros head on that, just so I have a lot of versatility. Of if I want to pop a rifle on there, bino spotter, I can. Um, it's not, you know, going to be sufficient for like a giant spotter and like true grid. But I've honestly been really happy with it for my needs, which are mostly focused on binos and then uh, occasional shooting just for. Uh, the practice of it and don't necessarily shoot from a tripod in the field unless I have to, but um, using that more and more. Um, and yeah, that's pretty easy. I mean, for me, I just don't not being a big mule deer guy, not doing a ton of scouting in the field. Like I just don't rely on it. And if uh, I have a couple different spotter options, but always can like, Hey Steve, let me borrow this from SNS too. So <laughs> that's yeah. my, that's my fallback plan. Uh, clothing was kind of, I think the last big category uh, that we hit and uh I feel like at the time we were a giant first light commercial, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> um, not much has changed for me, man. Prana pants. I wear uh, first light tops. Um, they're wick and they're kiln. The anything new last year, you know, um, browsing Instagram, probably sitting on the toilet. Like I had a, a ad pop up for a company called Ridge Merino and it was a, what looked like a, um, so first light has Halstead fleece. Is that right? The grid fleece. Uh, the grid is not gosh, dang it. Klamath. No, Klamath. Okay. So they have this Klamath fleece. Awesome piece. Me being the weight weenie that I am. I look at, it, I put it on a scale. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of freaking heavy. Well, this Ridge Merino had a wool grid fleece shirt and it's, um, I looked at, it, I was like, oh, that looks nice. You know, just kind of clicked out on it. And it was like. 10 ounces, 11 ounces. It's like half the weight of a Klamath. Um, and so I bought one, ran it all last year. Very impressed with it. Not, not as warm as a Klamath, but um, warmth to weight ratio is phenomenal. And it uses like a polar tech kind of grid fleece uh, wool combination. And it's a pretty cool piece. Um, and then I've talked about that stellar uh, when I, I did my own kind of private down jacket review, you know, ordered, all the kind of the lightest weight, you know, balancing weight and warmth that I could out there or five or six different jackets. And, um, and then this it's called stellar, um, ultralight down puffy. It's a, like a Switzerland company, I think. Um, and, uh, it's really nice again, 11, 11 ounces as it uses what they call a 1000 fill, but I think that's European standards. It's like a 950 fill or something like that for us and super cool jacket. It has an amazing, dwr on it i did some water tests and yeah blown away by that so um 
other new clothing, I guess it's been introduced to me is first light came out with their puffy pants. Uh, you know, at first I'm like, ah, frick, whatever. And then you actually use those on a 10 degree hunt where you got to sit there in glass for a couple hours and man, they're, they're freaking pretty nice. Like it's one of those, you know, comfort things that yes, it's weight in your pack, but it, it allows you to stay out there in the field longer and stay warmer. And, you know, usually nine times out of 10 sitting, glassing, being patient, uh, is better. You're better suited doing that than like, you know, in the past, if I got cold, it's like, all right, I'm going to hike up the hill and move glassing spots just to get blood flowing again and get warm again. So, um, yeah, pretty impressed with that. Yeah. Those puffy pants and then their Brooks down mittens, like same category, same hunt. I'm taking those puffy pants. I'm taking those down mittens and they are freaking awesome. Like just yeah. keep, keep your hands toasty warm. And, um, I took them, uh, went, took, I think I remember talking about going ice fishing back in probably January, February and went with my whole family and my mom's hands were frozen. And I pulled those things out and gave her to her and she was, she was raving about them, you know, like, holy cow, like <laughs> these things are awesome. So that they are a pretty cool piece that something was never, you know, even not remotely on my radar, you know, six, seven years ago. Yeah. I think the, the big thing that stands out, uh, in my mind to me, that's changed in clothing is why well, I still love Merino. I'm less like dogmatic about it like i wear less mm. merino in the sense that um you go back then and it was like my mid-layer had to be merino and things like that and th- this still has a place but with something like the grid fleece i honestly find it more comfortable uh more warmth for the weight things like that um yeah. i used to only wear merino boxers back then just for like the scent factor and i more prone to wear synthetics now, um, depending on the conditions. And I don't know if like treatments have gotten better or anything like that, but I feel like they get less stinky than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I still love Merino, still wear Merino base layers, but I'm not just as Merino everything or as Merino heavy as I used to be. So yes, Merino base layer, but my mid layer, that grid fleece is good. Um, don't always wear Merino underwear, things like that. So, um, yeah, Prana's Lions are obviously great. The first light pants this year, the new foundry stuff, they nailed the fit on. Um, so there's some good options there. Late season or like that Kodiak hunt where it's really brushy. I wore those first light sawbuck pants. Um, so I kind of bounce around pants based on the hunt. Always Merino base layer, pretty much now always that grid fleece mid layer. Um, puffy insulation pieces depend on the hunt, how active. I'm going to be how cold it's going to be. Um, you know, the, the Arteryx Adam LT has been crazy impressed with, um, it's a a synthetic piece, not down. It's a really good combination of warmth without overheating too quick. Like it has ventilated side panels, really good cut. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's what we go back to all the time of like, Essentially, base layer, mid layer insulation is the key in figuring out what you want to do there. And then just based on the hunt, it's how much do you bump up the insulation? Mm-hmm. Do you need to add rain gear? Those things there. So, yeah. Yeah. For me, temperature is, you know, below 25, 30. All, it's an extra base layer. And then uh, everything else stays the same. And then, and then uh, rain jacket pants. Yeah. If it's going to be wet. And that's all that changes. It's really simple. Long johns, I guess, as well. What else, Steve? So if you look at your 
the categories of the items that we discovered, if you scan through your gear list, does anything come up? Um, Cause I think what we did now in this conversation was hit what we discussed then, but maybe there's something we missed back then six years ago. Uh, you know, obviously I've went back then was 1000% a bow hunter. I don't think I even owned a rifle at that point. Um, and so that some of the rifle stuff for me has changed. I mean, there's not a lot, frankly, that's you got the gun. Um, I made a, um, this was just a personal thing, but I took, I, it is nice to shoot with a rear bag, right? Um, if you're on a bipod and you got that rear bag back there and I took our lumbar pad fabric and made this kind of nice rectangular cube that I then stuffed my tarp and bivy sack into. And so I get a double as a stuff sack and a rear bag when I needed, which has been, um, pretty cool little adaptation I made always have electrical tape, um, along with, you know, duct tape and electrical tape to cover the end of the barrel, um, to keep that going, uh, keep that dry and clean. Um, gosh, I think that's it. And then the, the yeah, like packing, being concerned about, uh, range finding binoculars with, um, ballistics built into it versus regular binos and a handheld, um, range finder. So, yeah. um, and yeah, then, yeah, you know, I've just gotten to do like more, you know, I've been to Alaska more sheep hunts and things like that, where things change a little bit, like, you know, needing to pack leather gloves in that country is something you don't need to do in Idaho, uh, packing Crocs. Like that's what I'm on my optional gear list. You know, I've got these few things that just, uh, um, vary, right. Just depending on, I've got a bug head net on there for Alaska, right? Like things that I wasn't too concerned about in 2015 that I am now that uh, is on the list just to make sure for obviously hunt dependent that that's there. But other than that, man, I mean, core gear is core gear, right? Like we, we talk about these essentials, you just make sure you always got those. And then everything else is kind of, um, you know, nice little add-ons fluff. But if, if you at least at the very least got like that core list of stuff, when you leave your house, you know, you're not going to be, you know, nothing's going to be having negative, severe negative impact on the outcome of your hunt. Yeah. A few little items, like you said, that are kind of situational or hunt specific. Obviously, if we're talking archery elk, you're going to have a bugle and calls, uh, wind checkers. Like there's little pieces that we kind of, you know, skipped over in this one. But again, we're talking essential gear. Um, as I'm scrolling through my list, Steve, there's one thing that's uh, you and I would both consider essential that we didn't mention yet. That is in reach. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. we've talked about a million times. Like, right. that's going to surprise no one if they listen yes. to this podcast. Pause the damn podcast. It. Go buy an inReach right now. I don't yeah. care <laughs> if you got to max out a credit card. Go buy a damn inReach. Yeah. Enough said. Um, yeah, man. I think we had everything else. I know for me, um, at the end of that podcast six years ago, I talked about my pack weight. And when we talk about pack weight, uh, I think for both you and I, we're talking about all this essential gear we talked about not accommodating for uh, consumables such as water, food, fuel. So our base pack weight is what we discussed today without water, food, fuel, or weapon. Um, But then I know I mentioned I was in the 24 to 25 pound range. Um, And now I'm typically sub 20, Um, again, depending on the hunt, time of year, things like that. Um, And so over the years, just by eliminating a few things, upgrading a few things, I've personally shaved, call it five pounds from my gear list. Um, so that's like kind of just one example of incremental upgrades uh, in better gear. And at the same time, also proving to myself, here's some things I used to pack, uh, packing my fears type thing that I've kind of proved to myself that I don't need anymore. Yeah. Um, and so that's a change. 
you know, additional things, um, just check out the links in the show description. Um, we're going to have more links there for resources, gear lists, uh, budget gear recommendations, a prior, like if you want to go, for example, deeper on shelters, like we'll list, uh, we did a pack essentials series of podcasts, I think two years ago now, where we kind of go deeper into these categories, but, uh, that was a good overview and kind of fun to compare, like, Yes, there's changes from six years ago, Steve, but we could take everything we had six years ago and go kill some yeah. elk and deer and critters. Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't think I've necessarily saved much weight. I'm probably two to three pounds lighter than you. I know if I was going elk hunting, um, I, I'm probably 16 pounds with that. That's no tripod and spine scope. So it's just base gear, pack, um, Probably, you know, say it's a two night trip. That's probably includes food, um, no water, no weapon, but yeah, 16, 17 pounds. Uh, it's, it's stupid light, but you, you know, you go through the list, like you want to pick up, like I'm not missing anything, right? Like I've got everything I need. Um, the, uh, one other thing that jumped out that I would love to mention too, is on the, the, uh, wiser precision quick sticks on the trekking poles. Um, that when I was going through rifle stuff, that was one thing I missed off the, on the list. Those things are, have been absolutely freaking awesome. And as we talked about shooting, here the other day of, of like bear hugging the pack and then putting the, the end of the stock out there on the quick sticks, man, we were, you and I didn't miss a shot out to five, 600 yards. It was, uh, you can get fairly steady and, and get a good rest in a wide varying terrain. Those things are awesome. Cool. Well, as always guys, if you uh, have questions for us, feel free to shoot an email over to podcasts at exomongear.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you do receive future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.